bill, which was just passed in Canada, uh, dictating what the church can and cannot say about uh, sexual sin. And um, a bunch of churches in the CRC, in the PCA, Reformed Baptist churches, independent churches, a lot of men are preaching on the same subject today. Um, But what I want to do, just I think if you've been around conservative circles for very long, what, what I immediately saw was a big trap I felt like this uh, is something we ought to do, but there is a big trap here. And, um, you know, when, when you blow the trumpet and say, hey, ministers, let's all get together and preach against gay, uh, gays and government, uh, everybody's just a little too eager. Um, and, and that eagerness, uh, I, I think, is partially what I'm going to respond to at the same time as responding to the Canadian government. Um, and, and what you'll see is this, this, the same bill that they passed in, in Canada, they passed in two, 2018 here in Washington. Uh, so it's even more imperative that we talk about this. So what we're going to talk about today is um, how do we address the sins of the culture? What is our theology of addressing sin? So let's, let's open this um, rather difficult task by praying. Father, we thank you so much. Um, for this land. We thank you, Lord, uh, that our ancestors came here and that they founded, Lord, countries based on um, your your clear teachings from Scripture and your principles. And and though it was a mixed bag of blessing and cursing uh, that we are still dealing with today, Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach us what it means to be good citizens, what it means to be good churchmen, what it means, Lord, uh, to, to struggle and fight and wrestle against our own sins, against our own desires. Uh, even as we um, are sinned against and as we deal with the sins of the culture um, and, and how the effect it has on our wives and our children, our husbands, our, our culture as a church, I pray, Lord, that you would give us clear insight, that you would give us um, pure hearts, and that you would give us a great uh, faith, Lord, to obey you in all things. We thank you and we praise you and amen. amen. Now, recent legislation in Canada has brought again to the forefront of the culture war, the issue of authority. Now, I want to be very clear here. My bringing this up is not an example, uh, I strongly believe, of, of chest-thumping bravado. But if you, if you have been paying attention to the scorecards, in the last three years, the attempt to shut us down and shut us up um, has intensified. It's intensified. Shut them down or shut them up. That is what they've been attempting to do. And they will use any means of manipulation, fear, uh, or outright lies to do that. And so it it is imperative for the church, uh, when we are told to sit down and shut up, (laughs) to stand up and speak. It's imperative. It's not chest-thumping bravado. It's a responsibility that we have. Who, who has the ultimate authority over reality? Okay? Now, in our response to, to, to false realities and people with false authorities trying to tell us what that reality is, what we can't do is then stand up and say it's us. And I think during COVID, uh, when they were telling us to shut down, this was a very confusing. I think a lot of ministers stood up in the face of being told to shut down, and they said, you don't have the responsibility, right? You are not the authority over me. I'm the authority over me. And I think what we missed was the opportunity to say, I'm not going to listen to you because you're not the authority of me, and I'm not the authority of me. Christ is the authority of me. Amen. 
So I want to clarify that, because that is, I think, what we need to do. We're, we're not, we're not, it doesn't do us any good to stand up to false uh, or to abuses of authority with abuses of authority. <laughs> right? But who defines reality? Who defines words? Words like sex and gender and love and sin. Who defines these things? Now, the C4 bill, as I mentioned earlier, was recently passed in Canada. And they um, go out of their way to, divide, to, to f- define something called conversion therapy. Now, I, I've, I've taken a lot of classes on um, counseling. I've never used this term. This isn't what I would call what we do. But conversion therapy is something that the ACA hates, uh, something that the American um, uh, psychological community uh, counselors hate, conversion therapy. And, and what I think is very funny about it is it's not at all what I would define what we do. But here's how they define um, conversion therapy. It's any means or practice, treatment or service, designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. A person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, or repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. To repress gender identity or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Now, essentially, what does that mean, right? This is legalese. Um, <laughs> they don't just come right out and say it. But what, they, what this means is ba- any treatment based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. Any, any, you are not allowed to say that this one is good and this one is bad. This one is natural and this one is not. You're not allowed to say that. That is what this bill is saying. I cannot say heterosexuality is better than homosexuality. Now, in the preamble of that bill, we read, conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation. I'm going <laughs> to... Now, I love mythology. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they're talking about the same thing, though. I'm going to read that again. Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation. Gender identity, gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, who assigned it, I might... Anyway, I'm sorry. I just... (laughs) I mean, they can't, they can't get Christ out of their own documents. <laughs> Conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, gender expressions. In light of those harms, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. The Canadian government just said, did God really say... What else would you call this? Did God really say that your sex is assigned to birth? Did God really say that there's male and female? Did God really say that one particular sexual orientation is preferable over another? And what I, what I want us all to do is to laugh. Uh, this is funny. I mean, this is, as, right? The, the, the Canadian government, as progressive and modern and advanced as it is, has not gotten uh, beyond the rebellion of Satan in the garden. And, and, and on one level, I think that we should have a hearty laugh and not take this very seriously. Because, the, right, we should not go home and wring our hands and wonder, oh, 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 no, what are we going to do now? 
You're like, oh, that's the play you're going to run? Well, we know how to handle this. We know how to handle this. Not only have we seen this story again and again and again and again, the Lord Jesus dealt with the same thing when he was tempted, and he showed us how to handle it, right? And, and what did he do? He, he told them, he told Satan, he told him who defines reality. He told Satan, right? He, he quoted scripture to him, and, and that is our responsibility. Did God really say? And our answer is not to run in fear. Our answer is not to thump our chests and start screaming like madmen. Our answer is, yes, he did. Next, what's the next problem? <laughs> you want to talk about homelessness next? Let's, let's move on to the next thing. He did say it. The government of Canada has codified the belief that the Bible is myth. And this is actually the most dangerous part about this. Okay? The Washington Bill doesn't do this. They call the Bible mythology. They say, uh, they make it illegal to say that a particular sexual orientation or gender is to be preferred. But the deeper implication is that scripture, right? They don't say where the myth comes from. It's very, very um, generic language that you can fit almost anything in. The Apostles' Creed, is that myth? Is Exodus myth? Is Matthew myth? Like, what's the myth that they're referring to? They can, and this is what governments always do with expansive language like this, fit whatever they want into this, right? What do you mean by myth? Well, it doesn't matter what they discussed in the House when they were passing this bill. As we all learn, right, if if you can take the Constitution and find a right to privacy that justifies abortion, modern legalists can fit anything in any word. And, and they've left themselves here room to do a great deal of harm. Okay, this is not a far-off problem, though. In 2018, the state of Washington also passed a bill banning conversion therapy for minors. And in and, and, and that bill, it makes it illegal to, um, to practice conversion therapy with minors. So if you come to me with your son who wants to transition to a female, it is illegal for me to tell him otherwise. It is illegal for me to tell him no. It's illegal for me to, to counsel him using the word of God. Now, the Washington bill doesn't have the same thing about myths in there. But what they've done, it, right, and adults are different. They, they've just opened the floodgates here with this idea that I'm not allowed to tell an eight-year-old who is a boy, right, because they were assigned by God at birth to be a boy, that it's unnatural for him to want to be a girl. Okay, now, now what, it, what, what this does is, you know, it's very odd. When, when people come to me with things like this, when somebody comes to me and they tell me that they, they have homosexual urges, right? how the government thinks I handle that, and based on the, the text that I'm reading here, is never, like, what do you, like, I tie them to a chair and I start waterboarding them? <laughs> right? That's ne- right? Could you imagine if we counseled in any way that way? Like, it, what, what one thing is they are de- demonstrating the way they think we do it. And it's this very authoritative, cold, bloodless, like, compassionless way of dealing with it. And it's not how actual men who love Jesus Christ and the word of God deal with these kinds of problems. These are serious problems. When an eight-year-old boy wants, thinks that he is a girl and wants to transition to gir- a girl and wants to start messing around with his ability to have children, that is a serious problem. And, and, and to deal with it in this way is, is I think, a little tawdry. I think even the approach is tawdry. Now, the American Counseling Association, that august body, in 2018, said conversion therapy is a violation of the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics. 
the ACA position is that conversion therapy does not work, can cause harm, and attempts to change sexual orientation, a human condition that is not recognized by the medical community as a disorder. But do you know what is conservatism? Conservatism, they're writing articles now about how conservatism is a a mental disorder. And, And this is not the first time they've tried this. They've tried this before. Okay, but if, if you are a man who wants to sleep with men, that's, there's, nothing, there's no disorder there. Right? That, so they're defining reality. They're calling that natural. It's perfectly normal. <laughs> Homosexuals are born this way. Now, forget the fact that males and females are not born this way, but homosexuals are. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, again... Do we really need to say anything else? Homosexuals are born this way, but males and females aren't born this way. So it, it is possible for someone to just be born this way. And, and, and what I think we need to stop doing is taking this on one level so seriously. That, that is incoherent on the surface. It's incoherent on the surface. And, 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 and so why, if it's so incoherent on the surface, are we so bad at dealing with it and fighting against it? And, I, and, I, and that's what I'm talking about, about the fact that there is a trap here. There's a trap here. And the reason that we can't deal with something so illogical, we will, we will go on to find in another place. Right? The logic of this is straightforward. It's awful. Now, here's a title. This is one of the greatest titles I have ever read. I have to take a big breath. The National Center for Lesbian Rights Youth Policy Council and Born Perfect Campaign Coordinator. I wonder how much she had to pay for that title. Her name is Carolyn Rays. This is what she had to say. We know that few practices hurt LGBTQ youth more than attempts to change their sexual orientation or, or gender identity through the debunked practice of conversion therapy. Washington State sets an example for the rest of the country in ensuring every child knows that they are born perfect. Yeah, for what, what standard are you judging that by? And is that, is that a scientific statement? And, and, and I, I just feel like the professor from The Lion, the Witch, and the Ward, what do they teach them in these schools? <laughs> by what standard? is That's no longer a scientific statement. That's a metaphysical statement. That's a religious statement. That's an ethical statement. You've wandered out of the lab now into the, into the philosophy department, and I don't think you're prepared and, and, and then, so, if they're this unprepared, how is it that we're losing? And there's the trap. Right? If we're getting our lunch handed to us in the fashion in which we are on this issue, when, when it's this bad, what is going on? <clears throat> now, these organizations are clearly founded on the idea that children are not born fallen in Adam. Right? And to say that any child is not perfect... Failing to validate their natural desires is morally reprehensible and illegal. And and I just want to point out that what they've done in the last 10 years is move the goalposts. Tolerance is no longer enough. you, You can no longer merely tolerate these things. You have to support them. You have to affirm them. Whatever reality whoever brings to you, you cannot tell that person that that reality is wrong. We live in an age now where it is unethical to tell people that their, their version of reality is in any way, shape, or form not real. 
There is a great deal of confusion here, and it demonstrates the need for an authoritative voice in ethics. We live in an age that has refused any objective standard definition for ethical behavior. Society clamors for ethically sourced products. You go down to the Fred Meyer down here, and what, you go to the coffee aisle, and you take the coffee down, and what does it say? Ethically sourced coffee. You go to the meat department, and the meat, meat department literally says ethically sourced beef. Now, this is why you guys hire me to do these things, because I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but Pornhub the number one pornography website, has recently had quite a dust-up, and they've gotten into a lot of trouble. And people have tried to shut them down because their porn is not ethically sourced. <laughs> I did not make this up. I do not, I'm not making this up. People are clamoring for ethically sourced pornography. Now, what in the world at this point are we talking about? <laughs> what is that? What is that? And, they, and they're... And I'm not kidding, women's rights organizations and stuff are getting in the mix here. This is a serious thing that people in the world are taking very seriously. And I understand why, and, and, and given what they mean, I don't, right, if you're going to do it, at least do it with some ethics, opposed to right, the sex trafficking thing that they have going on on Pornhub. And, and, and it's a mess. And, and we're living in a world where this is what people are clamoring for. And, and, what, pe and what the world needs is what? A, an authoritative voice on ethics. So the church stands up and is the clear authoritative voice on ethics. Right? When there's this kind of power vacuum, where did we go? What happened to us? Now, I, I want to talk about this because th this bill, the problem with it, is what we've seen in the last 10 years. There's a very slippery slope here. 10 years ago, when they wanted to make uh, homosexual marriage legal, uh, we said, that's a very slippery slope, you know. Once you, once you do that, next thing you know, you're going to be normalizing pedophilia. And, and, of course, all the progressives are like, you're out of your mind, you conspiracy theorists. The USA Today, you know, that little periodical nobody reads, on their Twitter account this week, tried to normalize pedophilia. And, and the headline was something like, we don't understand, pedof we don't understand pedophiles. You don't understand them. Oh, oh really? <laughs> Tell me more. And then they quickly took it down, because it's maybe just a little too early to normalize pedophilia. But there are, I actually read three studies done at universities, where they are, in fact, actually trying to normalize it. So was it a conspiracy theory that if you yank, you start yanking the, the pillars of what, right, the sexual ethic in our mind, biblical sexual ethics, we start yanking down the pillars, what you're going to have is chaos. What you're going to have is total um, uh, destruction of any kind of standard. And they're literally doing the thing that we said they were going to do because this is how slippery slopes work. So if you work something like the Bible is myth into a bill, in five years, what are they going to be doing with that? <clears throat> now, there's nothing new under the sun, Okay. Again, right, what's their argument? Did God really say? And, and, and their idea about shutting us up is also not new. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20, right, we find out that this is also what, what people of the secular powers have been doing to us for a long time. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot 
but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot speak but of what we've seen and heard. That's our responsibility. Okay? So now what we have is a world clamoring for ethics, clamoring for clarity, clamoring for someone to define the reality in which they live, and, and, and all, our responsibility is to do what? To talk about what we've seen and heard. There are times in the history of the church when it is paramount that we assert the crown rights of Christ and the authority of his word. I wish we lived in better times, which that wasn't the main thing that we had to do, but I find myself increasingly, this is the thing I'm called upon to do. I was called upon to be a minister at this particular time, at this particular place, because somebody has got to stand up and say, Jesus is the Lord. Amen. And, and luckily, right, I talk about, I'm not, I'm not that educated for a clergyman. My education is pretty simple, and it's pretty much, <laughs> given my history, that, I, I, and, and I find it hilarious that I was born for such a moment. Jesus Christ is the Lord, right? And, and I'm looking around, waiting for more and more and more of us to stand up and say that. Like, let's just start, like, let's have the conflict. Let's have the debate. You are not the king of me, right? And I'm not the king of you. We have a king who stands above us who's judging what we're doing. His name is Jesus, right? And, and I've seen and I've heard enough now. Right? I know the word. I know the authority. I, I go here, and this reality that he describes is the reality that the world needs. And I'm not going to be told not to tell people. I, if I'm sitting there with some poor, broken person because they, they don't know what to do with their homosexual feelings, the last thing I'm going to do is deny them the reality that the Lord has given me, the love that the Lord has given me, the word that the Lord has given me, the hope that the word has given the conviction and comfort that the Lord has given me. It's time to stand up and make that argument. Okay, and that's, that's not blustering. It is a battle over authority. And it is a time for us to go back to the basics. Okay, we, we, can, we can debate. This is why people ask me, why in the CREC do you have all these wildly divergent theological backgrounds coming together? Well, because we live in a much simpler time. Okay, my grandkids will sit down and work out the baptism problem. Do we, right, do we baptize babies or not? I do. Lots of you don't. Our, our grandkids will figure that out. You and me, our responsibility, and the reason we're here together, regardless of whatever differences we have, the, the, the similarity we have is this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Who defines reality? The one who made it. Who defines reality? The one who was the means of creating it. Who defines reality? The one who holds it all together. What he says about the reality of this world is what matters. And, and our kids will work out the, right, the fine details later. This is a generation where we have got to get used to saying this phrase, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now, in 2018, in, in response, I believe, to the Washington State Bill that was passed, our denomination, the CREC, Com Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, put out a statement that we all voted on, and this is what it says. Okay? This is our authoritative statement on this subject. 
The CRAC affirms the Bible's teaching on the creation of man and woman and the establishment of the marriage relationship as only between one man and one woman. There are two sexes, male and female. We stand against all attempts to confuse the Bible's clear teaching in this area. The CRAC believes that Christians who struggle with various sexual temptations should receive ongoing pastoral care, including those who are tempted to engage in sexual perversions. At the same time, we believe that any teaching that combines LGBTQ identity with identity in Christ is completely unbiblical. We believe that encouraging Christians who face certain sexual temptations to identify as lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgenders, whether in sexually active relationships or not, is unbiblical. And further, that this teaching will have destructive effects in the long term, both for individuals who follow it and for any Christian bodies who accommodate it. We exhort all ecclesiastical bodies to declare the Bible's full and clear teaching on sexual behavior, whether in desires or actions, and to encourage individuals to repent of sinful desires and sexual behavior as they turn to Christ to resist temptation. Now, I, I found the trap in that paragraph. I found the trap. I found the reason that we are so bad at explaining this. It was there. Now, I was there when they voted on that in 2018, and I didn't notice it then, right? But that's, this is how God works. He takes his time. We're going to continue to do the very thing that the Canadian and Washington state governments have said we cannot do. This is a time to remember an old truth that sometimes rebellion is righteousness. And, and it's, we've, right, this is the lesson that we're being taught. Sometimes, at certain times and certain places, Righteousness is rebellion. It, it is false compassion to accept and affirm those who are unrepentant in their sexual sins. Charity demands that we speak truthfully about these things. But it's hard, isn't it, to talk to the world about its identity and sexual sin problem. When we ourselves have internet histories full of harems that would make Solomon blush. or immodest neo-feminists henpecking their husbands, limiting their birth rates, and compromising with pop culture. Do you know why we have nothing to say to the identity and sexual sin problem of the world? Because we have a massive identity and sexual sin problem. And, and the people who are supposed to stand up and say something about it don't know what to say. And it's because of our theology of sin. And in a church like ours, I think the trap is a very real problem because we come in here every week and what's the first thing we do? We confess our sins. And we talk a lot about sins. But there is something in that paragraph that I read that we don't talk about. And that is desires. We are fighting a battle with something, right? We, we wait until the sin has occurred. And we talk a lot about what you, happen, what you do when, once that's happened. But I think what we need to do in order to correct one major correction is we need to move the goalpost ourselves back and stop talking about what happens when we commit a sin and start talking about the, thing, the sins we want to commit because we don't want to talk about that, right? And, and, and so now what you have is what you call side B, uh, homosexual Christianity, spiritual friendship, where you have these truly conservative people trying to reconcile <laughs> biblical ethics with the fact that they're gay 
And so what they say is, like, as long as I don't act upon my homosexual urges, everything's fine. And a whole bunch of Christians are like, yeah, that seems right. If you're just celibate, you'll be fine. And you know why we want to do this? Because we don't want to talk about desires. We don't want to talk about desires. We don't want to make it about that. Because we're, we're a church in an age, right, where we, we, what we want is externals, and we, what we don't want to talk about is what is going on inside of our own hearts. The last person who should be speaking against homosexuality is a man who can't control his lust. Right? If you're a person who can't control your lust, sit down and be quiet. If you're a man who can't control his anger, if you're a man who can't control his drinking, sit down, and, and this is not your fight. Your fight lies elsewhere. The last person who should be talking about submitting to God's law is a woman who won't submit to her own husband. Be quiet. Sit down. Stop. You have other issues. This fight is not for you. We must reestablish the proper means of dealing with our sin. We must learn to be lumberjacks and janitors. Lumberjacks and janitors. That's the theology of sin, my friends. We chop down the trees and we sweep up the specks. And we do it in that order. Right? If you ever cut a tree down, there's a lot of specks left afterwards. There's a lot of cleaning up to do. There's a lot of raking to do. And what we need to do is learn how to be lumberjacks and janitors. There's enough lumber in our eyes to build a new Tower of Babel. Now, how can we address the sins of the world when we fail to address the sins in the household of God? How can we address the sins in the household of God when we fail to address the sins in our own house? How can we address the sins in our own house when we fail to address the sins in our own hearts? Let's start with the sins of our desires. The desires themselves, the inordinate desires themselves, are something to be repented of. Stop waiting until you act upon them. I'm going to read a bunch of verses in quick succession. Don't go with me, just listen. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Job 14.4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Job 15.14. What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick who can understand it. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now all of us, right, all of us in our soteriology are like, Amen. But let's actually talk about this then. Let's talk about the desires we have that we're not resisting, that are leading us to a whole bunch of sins, that are making it so that we are unqualified to talk to people about their sin problem and their, and their identity problem. Because I think that's what's happening. And I think in, in former ages, when, when the Puritan ministers and ministers of the gospel would stand up and say, listen, you really can stop sinning so much. You really can. And what you've got to do is stop waiting until you sin, right? Because that, that, there's a trap there. And what, how do you set up a trap? Well, what you do is you put bait. And, and what we're not dealing with is the bait. We ignore the bait. We fall into the trap. And then, we, and, and then what, all the shame and guilt that's happening to us is, making, is clouding our minds, clouding our hearts, frustrating us. 
Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, if you go there with me, is very clear about this. Okay? And, and a few years ago, I had a Christian brother who I respect a lot say that abortion is not a heart issue. And I did not react very well at the time because I did not understand the import of what he was saying. Abortion is not a heart issue. What does that mean? Why does he think that? Where did that idea come from? And what I've begun to notice is that this idea is popping up all over the place. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, this is what Jesus has to say. And this is why, he's ra- this is why they want to kill him. This is why they want to kill him. This is why we don't want to listen to him. This. We don't want this. You, it, this is what the Word of God says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. You've already done it. Now, how many of you, when you have a desire to do something that you know that you're not supposed to do, repent of doing it? Because I think the, tr- the trap here is that we're walking around with all kinds of unrepentant sin in our lives. Because we sit at home and we are so angry in our hearts that in our minds we're murdering people because that's what he says about murder as well. That's why abortion is a heart issue. You're murdering people. And, and, and then you're just like, oh man, I shouldn't think that way. Right? Or you just, you just nurture it. But then you actually commit a real sin against a real person. You're like, okay, well, I'll deal with that. Our lack of holiness is the problem. And, and, the, and we are not as holy as we could or should be because we're not dealing with something further up and further in. Christians must recognize those thoughts and actions which long before any overt sexual sin make the possibility of, uh, of giving in to temptation more likely. And, 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 this, and, and this has a lot to do with Satan and the fact that he's a great deal smarter and more experienced than all of us. And, and, and the fact that, you know, I, I read, I've read about this before. It's fascinating how sin can occur. And in, in examining it in my own life, like I have fallen into some sin that, that was pretty serious at, say, like four in the afternoon, right? Now, and, and I go in a way, and I'm like, how did that happen, right? I don't just walk around like, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a great guy. I'm not, I'm not a great holy guy, but typically, I don't just walk around with high-handed sin just, like, coming left and right out of me. Something had to get me there, and, and what you find when you deconstruct these things is that you were, you were urged along you're tempted all along. And this is what it means in Proverbs 7, where the man who's empty-headed goes by the harlot's house. And what is he doing? He's putting himself near temptation. He's tempting temptation. And, and this is something that we all need to learn to be a great deal better at. Stop tempting temptation to come after you. Stop putting yourself, right, and recognize the bait for what it is. <laughs> oh, look at this breadcrumb. Oh, look at this breadcrumb. Oh, look at this breadcrumb. It's even bigger. And before you know it, you're at the witch's house. She's stuffing you in the oven. <laughs> we have to repent of our desires. And that's what the statement from the CRC is talking about. Because homose- like homosexual Christians think that as long as you don't act upon the desires, then you're fine. And a bunch of Christians are like, okay, cool, that seems legit. And, and, and then... And we're just not dealing with the problem in our own community, in our own. Right? We don't have as much to say about this because we don't understand it. Now, I want to talk about a few areas 
right, where I think that this really shows. And I want to, and C.S. Lewis, and he wrote an essay, it was the preface to the Incarnation by Athanasius that someone, his friend, had translated. And in it, he, he's explaining the fact that um, even though uh, we all, right, we're all in the same time period, we all read the same things, we watch the same shows, we listen to the same music. Now, are we more likely to have the same kind of errors as the people voting on the C4 bill in Canada? Are we most, more likely to have the same kind of errors that they do or the same kind of errors that the Westminster Divines had in 1660? Right? Who do we actually have more in common with? The people of our own time. right? And there are certain errors that, we, that, that demonstrate what I'm talking about, where we think, okay, the problem isn't desire, the problem is the sin that you commit. right? And so what we've done is we've put the battle out here instead of fighting it where it actually exists in our own hearts. Now, one example of this is barrenness as blessing. Barrenness is blessing. Now, would, would you agree that secular women think barrenness is a blessing? Right? I don't, I can't, I, I'm going to college to become a lawyer. I can't have a kid right now. Uh, secular people I know who uh, don't have kids yet, they're married, they're waiting. They're waiting until they reach a certain level of financial stability. Right? They don't want to uh, jeopardize the quality of life for the child. And, and so what we need to do is, is prevent life to have more life. Now, this doesn't exist in Christian circles, does it? Right? Now, okay, we're not aborting babies, but how many women are limiting how many children they have because they're protecting the quality of life? Right? And, 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 our, and the desire is the same. The end result is different. And we say, okay, well, we're not committing that sin, we're com- right? We're not committing sin at all then. But the sin lies further up the river. Now, hold on, hold on. This is, this is Mike trying to turn over some new leaves. I'll be very careful here. <laughs> I, I, right, we had six children in quick succession. It was no problem getting pregnant and having kids. We can, we, now I understand a great deal about this because it's very easy to get pregnant. It's very hard to stay pregnant. Now, I understand there's all kinds of reasons people have to be careful about family planning. But family planning is sometimes just a Christian form of willful barrenness. It's not because it's hard for everyone. What, we're, what a lot of Christian women are doing are saying, listen, I've got kids. I've got to provide for them. They've got to, they got to be able to do, right? I've got to be able to educate them. I've got to be able to afford them. I've got to be, and, and so what they end up doing is they limit how many kids they have because what they're doing is barrenness is blessing. If we control how many children we have, I can control my environment. Because I can only homeschool so many kids at a time. I can only homeschool so many grades at a time. I can only homeschool so many kids at a certain span of time, right? I, my husband doesn't make enough money to do that. And, and what we do is, is, ladies, you're running around making the same neo-feminist arguments about not having as many kids as women, secular women are having about not having kids at all. And, I, I, right? and <laughs> um, this is a dangerous idea. I love all of you ladies. I hope that you all... Right, are not offended by what I'm saying. But, and, and, I, and with some trepidation, I came to this. And I've learned a lesson lately is that, um, especially me, like a lot of us Christian ministers are like, let's just hammer these dudes. We just hammer these guys and get them straight. Everything will work out. And I don't disagree with that. But what I am very loath to do personally, I'll admit it, is say very much about all of you lovely ladies. Right? I, I kind of don't feel qualified because I tend to think that you're all less sinners than I am. Right? And... and 
all of the modern paradigms about men fearing women and, 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 the, and the effeminate church, I demonstrated even myself. Because I'm like, well, I'll talk to the guy. I'll, yeah, I'll hammer the dudes on this subject over here. Fine. Oh, I'm not going to bring up that. <laughs> oh, no. We'll let Anne-Marie have a women's meeting. But, but, what, but if you stop and you think about how has the culture infected us, affected us, and, it's, and, and I'm going to go back and, and, and tie a bow on this. Barrenness is not a blessing. Okay? We, we, are making, we are making decisions about how much life we bring into this world because we're trying to control the quality of life we have. And this is a great sin in the church. And, and, and I think it's very difficult for us then to turn to secular women and talk to them about my body, my choice, and barrenness is a blessing when we ourselves are doing it. Right? And in, in a marriage, is it up to the woman how many children you have? Right? It, 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 is there things to fear? Yes. I'll tell you right now, I have six children. They're not cheap. But when did we ever start talking about finances and how many kids we could have at the same time? Isn't God, he's the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? Like, think, we, we talk about it like secularists. We talk about it in this cost-benefit analysis, like where we've got to keep everything even. And, and it's this desire in our hearts to control our atmosphere, to, to protect ourselves, to have more right, comfort. That, that's what we're really defending. Now, I'm sorry, ladies, I'm sorry. But I'm, well, but I'm not sorry because I'm going to go after another one. Okay, I'm not done yet. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's another side of this coin later. <laughs> With fear and trepidation. Proverbs 7.11. Feminine liberation. The wily-hearted woman in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 11, is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now, we've exchanged the patriarchy of home for the false patriarchy of the workplace. We have exchanged the busyness of the household for the busy schedule of modern convenience and experience and comfort. A woman's orientation away from the household, coupled with the rampant sin of the tongue, proves that there are a lot of Christian women who need to be quiet and go home. Right? Now, you think, ladies, think. The amount of gossip and backbiting and politics. It's terrifying what you guys do to one another. Partially why I like hanging out with guys is because they aren't nearly as nasty as women. Uh, the, right? I mean, and I'm not just talking about Beth Moore, right? I think John MacArthur got in trouble because he told Beth Moore to be quiet and go home. He was, it was based on the same verse. But I'm not even talking about that. Forget Twitter, forget Beth Moore. I'm talking about Christian women, right? Who, older ladies who are not being tied as two women, who, who, are, who are talking about marriage and talking about child-rearing as if it's this horrible task and it's so difficult, and, 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 and they're lacking an, an encouraging word for late, younger ladies. There are a lot of women who need to be quiet, and they need to go home, and they need to go back and figure out where their orientation is meant to be, what it is that God has called them to do. And that is be fruitful and multiply. That is be a helpmate, right? Your, your mission is the man. Right? But, but, but we, we've confused all of this. And then we want to go and we want to talk to the, the world, the secular world, about its identity problem. Like I said, how are we going to tell them to submit to the word of God when there are so many Christian women who will not submit to their husbands or their ministers or to the word of God? 
Okay, and, and this will be my last statement about that. There are a lot of Christian women who honestly lose patience, waiting for their husbands to make decisions, to act, to lead. And so they take headship upon themselves. And, and they do it biblically, actually. There's a couple of women who do Christian headship better, far better than some men I know. But let me just let me give you a thought experiment. If I went and found there's a female preacher I know of, she's, she's great on one level, she's fantastic at it. She's way better at it than I am. If I brought her here and she preached at you, because she's so good at it, does that make it okay? No, right? Her being good at it, you can teach a woman how to preach really well. That doesn't make it okay. So a woman who can do Christian headship really well doesn't make it okay. And I think, right, sometimes we're like, well, she's doing it the way he ought to be doing it, so it's okay. We have a profound authority problem. We have the responsibility to lead. When we have the responsibility to lead, we often fail to do it. When we have lawful authorities, we often fail to submit to them. When we have unlawful ones, we often fail to rebel against them. We have a problem, and, if we, and we can't go out and talk about the specks in the world's eye until we chop these logs down and deal with them. That's what Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5 is out. If you skip over, Matthew chapter 7. Verse 3 through 5. Let me see if I got it right here. Yeah. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I I automatically, I'm just going to say, I understand it's talking about brothers. But the principle applies, doesn't it? Right? Do you really want a guy representing us who can't control his lust or his temper going out there and railing against the world? John Calvin's comments are this. Jesus expressly touches upon a fault which is usually found in hypocrites. While they are too quick-sighted in discerning the faults of others and employ not only severe but intentionally exaggerated language in describing them, they throw their own sins behind their back or are so ingenious in finding apologies for them that they wish to be held excusable even in the very gross offenses. Christ, therefore, reproves both evils, the excessive sagacity which arises from our defect of charity when we sift too closely the faults of brethren and the indulgence by which we defend and cherish our own sins. Now, if you go to Galatians 6, 1 and 2, this is a verse that I've talked a lot about. Um, Let's see if I can just find it here. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Yeah. This is what it says there about sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? So let's go back. Now, you come here every week and you repent of your sins. Now, are you qualified to go out then and speak to others about their sins? Yes, but there is this problem about our desires. Are you repenting of your desires themselves? I have begun to do this, and I'm telling you it's transformative. I say, God, I didn't even do anything, right? Because I'm t- we have to take the word of God more seriously. I thought about it. I really wanted to do it. And what did Jesus say? Well, then you did it, son. Now, this, is a, this, I think, is very helpful to us because who, who, can, who can stand up with this? It's very difficult when you start di- slicing and dicing it this way. And what I found myself now generally hesitating to say things to other people and being far more concerned about just simply crying out to God. 
And, and I feel like I've leveled up. <laughs> it felt like one of those times where I leveled up. I'm like, you know what? I've got to be way slower in what I say. And what I've got to do is go home, and I don't even understand my heart. But I know it's full of all of these things, desires that, I ought, that ought not to be there that are there. And, and I cry out to God to deliver me. I cry out to God to give me a new heart, that, to give me new desires. And then what I find is it's way easier to talk to other people about their sins. One, because I don't see as many. Right? Because I see better without the logs in my own eye. And, and this is what I want to, this is what I want from us. I don't get caught in this trap where you see somebody sin. As it says in Galatians, you go running to deal with it. You yourself are not in a spiritual state and you fall into the trap. Because you, you have all kinds of desires in your own heart that you're not dealing with. And so there's, there's bait on the hook and you're grabbing it. And you're getting snatched out. And, and all this pain and difficulty is coming. How many of you guys have tried, right? We talk all the time about dra- addressing one another's sins. How many of you have tried it, and it's like, after being bit hard, you think, I'm not going to do that again. You turn to the spouse. You turn to the kids. You turn to the friend. You, you go with fear and trepidation, and you want to talk to them about something. How many of you have had an re- re- experience where you say, I'm not going to do that anymore? Those who are spiritual, and who are spiritual people? People who understand, in here is nothing good. The desires themselves are evil and wicked and contrary to God. And let's start with that. And once God is dealing with that in here, then we go out and and, and we're actually living the kind of life he wants us to live, the way he wants us to live it. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because this, this again, we're going to release the trap and deal with the trap, and hopefully take the trap away, so that we can start to deal with these things in in our culture in a meaningful way. Because we have to become lumberjacks and janitors before we become prophets. If you skip to the part where you're just a prophetic word to the culture, and you haven't dealt with the the logs and and the specs, you're unqualified to be a prophetic voice. But if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what we read in verses 9 and 10 first. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, first thing I want to point out here um, is something that challenges a modern misconception. The Apostle Paul is not distinguishing between the sinner and sins. He doesn't give us a list of sins. He does that in other places, but he's making a point. He's giving us a list of, a kind, of kinds of sinners. Right? This idea where you love the sinner and hate the sin. Is that what he's doing? He's making it personal. He's identifying the people he's talking about with the sins they're committing. Because those who are not in Christ, those who are not saved, those who are still walking in the darkness and in their sins are defined by their sins. You're not just a person who lies. You're a liar. You're not just a person who, who, who drinks too much. Sometimes you're a drunkard. You're an extortioner. You're a thief. It's personal. There's no nonsense about hating sin and loving sinners. The sinners are the sin. That's the problem. That's the problem. And all this nonsense about separating the two is why we have nothing to say. This identity you have where your, your, your whole identity is your sexual version, that's the thing that's got to die. We're not doing you any favors by telling you that God loves you just as you are except for this little thing, right? 
if you just roll your window down and throw that out, you'll be fine. That's not how it works when you're undragoned. He's got to dig down all the way into your heart and rip out this desire from its, from its very center. Sinners are identified by their sins. Now, the warning here is real. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to Christians, and he applies um, what he's saying about unbelievers to believers. He's saying, listen, don't get caught up in this false identity. Don't get caught up in these sins, because if you do, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's warning them for a reason. If there's not a reason to worry, the warning is meaningless. Okay, in in chapter 3, verse 18, just a page back, it says, let no one deceive himself. That's what he's, he's dealing with presumption. He's dealing with people who think that there's no problem when there is a huge problem because they have an identity problem and they have sin problems. Persisting in the same behavior as those destined for judgment, they are fastening themselves to the very real danger of that same judgment. Now, his list here includes what? Adulterers, sodomites, catamites, drunkards, thieves, liars, the covetous, cheats. Paul's list covers most of the second table of the law of Moses. Right there along with homosexuality, all of them are equally damnable. Now, what in in our conservative circus is the unforgivable sin? Gay, right? Being gay, that's the thing. Being a homosexual, being being LGBT, whatever. That's the unforgivable sin. Those are the people in Romans that says that God's turned over, right? There's, you can be, if you're greedy, that's fine. Greedy is over here. It's okay. But Paul clearly puts them all in the same list. Now, the word translated as homosexual is multiple words all wrapped up in one. And this is where I want to talk about one of them. He takes three words and he clumps them together as homosexual. And, and, and this is part of our problem. One of the words is malakoi. Malakoi, which means soft. Okay, these are not men who are homosexuals. These are effeminate men. Paul specifically is talking not just about guys who like guys. He's talking about guys who like girls, who act like girls. The sin of male softness, the sin of being effeminate, it is a sin. And a desire to be a soft man is a sin then. Metrosexuals are malakoi. The man who submits to every earthly authority besides Christ is a malakos. The yes-dear husbands are malakos. The husband who is led by his wife is malakos. The man who, without any examination, grants every uh, request, every moral authority to every demand that he apologize. There are a great number of us who are apologizing for things we ought not to apologize for, and a bunch of stuff we ought to apologize for that we're not. Right? And, and this is like, husbands, stop apologizing to your wives unless you actually did something you need to apologize for. There, there is no virtue, there is no righteousness in apologizing for something you didn't really think you did just to make her feel better. You're lying to her now. You're adding sin on top of sin. And men who do this are malico, malakoi. I am one of them. Right? If I think somebody is unhappy, I don't really examine whether I did anything. And I'm, oh, I find it ferocious when I come up against these guys. I'm like, hey, you, you sinned, and here's how. And they're like, no, I didn't. <laughs> how dare you? And that's how I react. I never, it's, it's startling when I run up against these guys. And I go home, and I'm like, man, how do, I, how do I walk around with that kind of swagger? Right? And that same guy later will come to me like, hey, you didn't notice this, but I committed this sin against you. Would you forgive me? And I'm like, I don't understand you. 
Now, a man who is physically present in his home but is emotionally not, is spiritually not, intellectually not, relationally not, is a malachoi. And the reason is because there's no substance to him. Now, we're, we, it's a big step forward when you simply have the men stay in the homes with the women and the children. It's another big step when you go from just being a physical presence to an emotional, spiritual, relational, intellectual presence. The meek are not malachoi. The meek will inherit the earth, Matthew 5.5. 5. And again, we have to make distinctions. Soft maleness is a sin. We are, not, we are speaking not of gentleness, which is a virtue, but softness, which is not. Men ought not to be soft. They ought to be gentle. And, and this is what, what I find. Our malachoi want to go to homosexual men and, and, and tell them off and rail against them. And then they go home and they say, yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. And, and, and this is why when they present us with such obviously poor logic, we have very little to say. Because we're compromised in our very hearts. Because down in our hearts are all kinds of desires that we're not repenting of. And, and we ourselves have all kinds of sexual sins. And, right, because mal- being a malachite is a sexual sin. It's a false masculinity. We have an identity problem. We have sexual sins, sins all over the place. And not dealing with them is what's making us ineffectual. So we can say to you know Canadian government, how dare you tell us what to say and what not to say? How about we start with this? How about we turn to one another? Well, hold on. Let's go even further back. Why don't we turn to this and we get our reality from this? And we start speaking the truth in love to one another with our spouses and our children, with our brothers and our sisters. What if we started dealing with the logs and the specks right in our own homes? What, what, that is how you learn how to do it. And what I find is the church is standing up to do something it doesn't know how to do. From top to bottom, left to right. It's our, our issues with the reality, right? Because this is another thing we do. We define ourselves, we define our reality in ways that God doesn't. Now, there are lots of helpful things like Enneagrams. Right? You read a book on the fact that you're an extrovert. And you think, man, that explains a lot about me. But how quick a step is it from that to making it an excuse? Right? How many of us think, well, we, you know, it's not that I'm a drunk. It's that I have this genetic predisposition. Right? I was born this way. Right? How many of you with your anger problems are like, listen, I, it's just the kind of guy I am. I've literally made... I myself, gentlemen, I know how this works. I've made this argument. Well, I, you're just not used to living with a man. This is what men are like. Men are rough. And you're like, yeah, that's why you get married, so that you become not rough. Okay, we, we, we ourselves are lost in this, well, I was just born this way. This is just how I am. And then we turn to the world and we're like, how dare you with all this gayness? What's wrong with you? Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. He gives us this whole list of all these sins, and he's talking to Christians, and he says, such were some of you. Some of you were catamites. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were malachoi. Some of you were greedy. Some of you were gluttons. Some of you were these things. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are no longer those things. That is no longer your identity. Your identity is Jesus. Stop defining who and what you are by anything other than him. Stop, def- right? Stop defining your reality by any other measure but him. What does he say about honor and goodness? What does he say about truth and honesty and beauty? What does he say about eating and drinking? What does he say about sexual ethics? What does he say about the desires of the heart? Right? Paul says, I don't even, I don't even judge myself. Self. I don't even stand in judgment of myself, he says. He says it in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians I don't even have the thing. It's in chapter 7, I think. Now, why? Because he, he knows he has no capacity even to judge his own sins. He lets this define his reality. So much so that he doesn't even consider himself. Now, that's a man who can stand up to the Corinthians and say the kind of things to the Corinthians that we need to say to the culture now. Because his reality is utterly and completely defined. His identity is utterly and completely defined in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what defines you? Right? This is who you are. Some of you, and I could go down a whole bunch of things, but that's not who you are anymore. So when you have that desire to go back to that, put it away and be who you are in Jesus Christ. Everything else is sin. Confession means to say the same thing. In this book, he describes his reality, and our responsibility is to repeat after him. Right? And, and, and before you go talking to anybody else, deal with the logs in your own eye. Deal with the desires in your own hearts. That's where we start. That's how we build a theology of, of sin and repentance. This is how we build a, a theology of identity that, we, that is useful not only to us, but to the whole world, which desperately needs it, right? And, and so now the trap is sprung. We're not going to get sucked into this. We are going to deal with first things first, and that is our own hearts, and that is who is Jesus, and what has he done for you, and how does he define your life? How does he define who you are, and what you are, and where you're going? That is our hope. That is our power. That is our glory. Stop looking to anything and everything else. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the ministry of Paul, Lord, who was so clear um, about sin, about our desires. I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that we would begin to fight our desires more and more, that we would address them, um, Lord, when and where they begin, which is in our own hearts that we would bring every thought captive to the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that our identity would not be anything other than Jesus, Lord, and that from that we would, we would gather strength and hope and love and compassion, and that we would go um, into our homes and in, into our communities and into this world and live like the Lord Jesus, in, in whose name we pray, and amen.